it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It is Tuesday, February the 7th, 2023, State of the Union Day here in Washington, D.C. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Always pleased and honored to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com if you want the free podcast at the end of the show. Every day, on demand, no charge. You can also go wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram. On the TV side, programming note, I'll be on the bottom line tonight with Dagan and Duffy, Fox Business Network, my first appearance on that brand new show. That's coming up in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time on FBN Radio. Listen to this lineup. We'll get to our first guest here in just a moment. Later on, General Jack Keane here in studio. Martha McCallum, part of our State of the Union coverage on Fox News Channel. She is here in studio And U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina will also be our guest. But moments ago, he just walked out the door. Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the Senate Republican leader, sat down with me one-on-one. Let's listen together. Joined now here in studio by the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. Great to see you again, sir. Yeah, glad to be here. So let's talk a bit about tonight. What are you expecting from the president? It's always a big narrative evening for the party in power. I'd imagine you probably won't be leaping to your feet all that often with rapturous applause. Going to try to avoid that. I think the good way to stop, uh, start is to see, uh, talk about what the president's job is tonight. I just looked at a poll today that you may well have referred to. It said only 13% of Americans thought the State of the Union was strong. 13%. They're reacting, obviously, to open borders, rampant crime inflation through the roof, and the balloon. A whole week surveying all of America before a decision to shoot it down. Reminds me of the tentative nature of their involvement in Ukraine, which I largely support. Frankly, my biggest criticism of the president on Ukraine is they don't seem to do things fast enough. So that's the challenge the president has before him, in trying to convince the American people of something they do not think, which is that the State of the Union is strong. And he wants to take credit for it, too. And that will be almost inevitably this sort of rah-rah thing about how, thanks to Democratic policies, look at the job growth and a few other things. I mean, you kind of know what's coming to some extent, a whitewash of the problems, a claim of victory. You know, maybe there are some people who are persuaded by that. I wonder if it's actually a potential backfire. Based on the polling, it's not where the public is. Yeah, he's not going to be able to convince people that what I just said is not true. Mm -hmm. But it is an opportunity for him to make his case to a fairly large audience, and I expect he'll do it as well as he can, given the circumstances. President Biden, a few weeks ago, was asked about the document scandal and the Mm. 
classified materials, and he said, this was out in California, that he had no regrets about any of it. Just yesterday, he was asked if he takes any personal blame for the mishandling of classified information. He said flat no. The White House wants us to believe, as they repeat ad nauseum, that they take all of this very seriously. But when you have the chief executive saying he has no regrets and takes no blame at all for his own actions, I mean, does that sound serious to you? No, I kind of like the way Mike Prince handled it. He said, uh, I may well have inadvertently done this. Come look. Um, From a public point of view, I think the administration ought to treat all three of these situations exactly the same way. No difference. And uh, in the end, we'll see whether this is something we should all be alarmed about or not. But one thing I know future presidents are going to do, I hope, is be a lot more careful about what they take away from from the Oval Office. There's this looming debt ceiling negotiation that's sort of already Mm -hmm. underway. The deadline for real looks like uh, sometime in June. I had lunch today with Speaker McCarthy, and he was giving some off-the-record thoughts about his approach to this. And I know he was very public that he met with the president last week, and he had described publicly that Mm -hmm. uh, that meeting rather as productive and good. A long way to go, though. It seems like there's a pretty big gap still between what the White House is wanting and saying versus what Republicans are saying. You were not in that meeting. What's your approach to this? Do you kind of want to let the president and the speaker do their thing, and you're going to hang back and see what comes out of that? Well, first, a little history. Uh, Joe Biden and I negotiated the Budget Control Act I remember. in 2011. Yep. Um, it was in conjunction with the debt ceiling. If you were interested in cutting spending, it actually did it. We cut spending for two years in a row for the first time since right after the Korean War. So if you were interested in reducing spending, it worked. Over the years, both parties didn't live with it, (laughs) frankly. We didn't like what it did to the Defense Department. They didn't like what it did to non-discretion. But if the goal was to reduce spending in conjunction with a debt ceiling discussion, it worked. Joe Biden was my negotiating partner. We're the two that did the deal. So he's this precedent that he participated in for doing this, and that's why I support the speaker's effort to get the president into a negotiation. So just given that history, though, and it's an important reminder, we've talked about it here on the show, why is Biden's initial posture, at least, that he won't discuss this at all? Like, it's just verboten. It'd be so irresponsible to use this leverage point to make a deal— he was the lead Democratic negotiator the last time it happened. He, he, well, the last few times it's happened, presidents of both parties have not been willing to negotiate spending reductions in conjunction with the debt ceiling. So what he's looking at, his experience under Obama and the experiences since then, and if you're the president, you don't point back to 2011 with pride. In fact, John McCain, who had a wicked sense of humor, after that negotiation, he thought I had gotten the best of the deal and that they had Joe Biden in a witness protection program over <laughs> on the Democratic Party. <laughs> so so maybe, I, I can understand the president's lack of willingness to do this because he took a lot of heat in the deal that we did together in 2011. If I may brag a bit, the Democrats felt that I out-negotiated him, and this is not a pleasant memory for him, and I don't think he wants to repeat it. Although it was signed into law by President Obama. Yeah, that's indeed. the precedent. That's the history. Yeah, he was, was front indeed. and center yeah. for all of that. So I, I guess the upshot is, just as far as the debt ceiling is concerned, it seems like it's your position that 
it is an untenable stance for the White House to say we cannot negotiate, we will not negotiate. Well, they're claiming the wrong president, I'll tell you that. And I think Kevin is trying to do the right thing, and I support him. And the reason he needs to take the lead is they're in the majority. And um, I think he's doing the right thing. Hopefully the president will enter into some kind of reform on spending that makes a difference. Last time you and I spoke on the air, it was before the midterm elections. And you were hopeful about the elections, but cautious, I would say. And, of course, then we saw what happened. And it was an underwhelming night for the Republican Party any way you slice it. There were some very bright spots. Florida, Ohio, Iowa. Republicans did win the House. Not by the margins they were hoping for. You guys lost a seat in the U.S. Senate. It's been a lot of finger pointing there. I wonder as we start to look ahead to 2024, do you think there's going to be any learning of lessons on the political right in that you know Democrats spent tens of millions of dollars meddling in Republican primaries? Mm-hmm. And in every single case where they meddled and got their preferred Republican, they won mm-hmm. every single time. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think Republican voters who might have been skeptical of you or anyone else's position, now that we've seen the proof in the pudding, the actual outcomes, where Republican voters might resolve to not let the Democrats pick Republican nominees for Republicans in the future? Uh, in the Senate, that only happened in one state. I mean, the, uh, <clears throat> the answer is we had a candidate quality problem. I talked about that in August. Number two, when I was on your show and every other show, I never predicted a red wave. We didn't see a red wave in the polling. We have to have the single best qualified candidate nominated in these states in order to have the kind of year that we want to have. That is some that is an evaluation shared by almost everyone on both sides who is actually involved in polling and analysis. So we're going to focus like a laser in this upcoming Senate cycle on candidate quality. In other words, get nominated the candidate who's most likely to put it in the win column in November. And just to clarify, there was the one example in the Senate, New Hampshire. There were also gubernatorial examples, House examples. Across the board, I think there's a lesson here. Yeah, my my point is, though, I I was focusing on the Senate. Sure. And that only happened in one Senate race, New Hampshire. Yep. And uh, we ourselves— in several places, nominated the least electable candidate. Yeah, it's just Republican without, without Democratic <laughs> without their help, right? Yeah. Bad decisions were made all on the Republicans' uh, part. On that same front, I've watched with interest in the last week or so. I'm not sure if you follow this particular mini drama, but former President Trump and some of his supporters have been attacking the governor of Florida, saying that he was actually very bad when it comes to COVID policy, which I find. A very strange line of attack on the merits, but that's what they're trying. They're test driving it. And someone who actually amplified that attack was the National Rapid Response Director for the Democratic National Committee, piling on DeSantis on Trump's behalf. It seems like some early meddling on the Democrats' part. Does that intrigue you at all? Is is there a lesson there? Well, I think what we have underway on the Republican side is a genuinely competitive race for the presidency, for the nomination. We only have one announced candidate, but we're going to have more. And Democrats getting involved in this in one way or another, I'm sure, is not unheard of. <laughs> and um, what what I think the, the, the bottom line is for Republican primary voters, we want to nominate the most electable 
candidate if it wanted to defeat Joe Biden or whomever the Democrats nominate. We had <coughs> Governor Chris Christie on this show last week. He's widely rumored to be looking at running for president. And he just said flatly on the air, and he said it elsewhere, too, that he believes former President Trump cannot win a general election in 2024, not viable in a general. That's his warning for Republican primary voters. Do you agree with him? Do you think Trump could, could not win an election? Yeah, I'm not going to get involved in the presidential primary. I I may well get involved in Senate races in the primary if we have a choice between a clearly electable candidate and somebody who can't win in November. On the other side of the aisle, the reporting is that President Biden is gearing up to announce another run for the presidency. You've known him a long time. My working theory now for months has been that he's not actually going to run. He's not up for it. Can't do this job for another six years. But I guess, you know, he's feeling some wind at his back after the elections. And the reporting at least suggests that this is at least the plan for now. He's going to run for reelection. Do you think he's going to follow through with that? I mean, based on what you know about Joe Biden, do you think he will be the nominee for his party as the incumbent heading into 24? I think it would be hard for him not to run again. And I would predict that he will run again. And as the incumbent president, if he runs again, he'll be the nominee. Uh, Our job is to beat him in the fall of 24. And to do that, we have to have the most electable candidate. Finally, looking more at the near future, heading into the next cycle, what do you feel like Senate Republicans can achieve over these next couple of years with the Democrats where it's appropriate, and then also fighting them and stopping certain things. What are some of your key battle lines and red lines in your mind? I think the most important thing is what will not happen this two years. Thank goodness the House flipped from Democrat to Republican. Why is that so important? That means there will be no reconciliation bill. The reconciliation process, I'm sure your listeners have learned over the last few years, is something you can do one party only, It's a way around the Senate filibuster. They dropped $1.9 trillion on the economy in March of 21. Larry Summers, Bill Clinton, Secretary of the Treasury, said this is going to create rampant inflation. They did. It did. And they doubled down on it again last summer with another $750 billion on top of that, both through the reconciliation process, meaning not a single Republican voted for it, with the House becoming Republican, they can't do that again. Mm-hmm. So they cannot have a trillion-dollar spending spree again. Good news. Further good news, the legislative agenda, I mean, Schumer's trying to figure out what to do because anything he might pass is not going to pass the House. And the House is doing a good job, I think, of rolling out proposals that they can pass with a simple majority. I think they'll continue to do that. Many of them will be widely supported by the American people, will not go anywhere in the Senate. And um, we're going to, I think, be set up on the Senate side, plus a favorable map. Very favorable. To to finally get the job done, provided, provided we have quality candidates on the general election ballot, which I think is my main focus.
and I would say up and down the ticket, especially at the top, because you can have quality down. If at the top there's a problem, there's a cascading effect potentially. Yeah, but Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the map, as you say, is favorable. That's sort of McConnell-esque understatement. It's extremely favorable. We'll see how it goes and a lot of battles teeing everything up for the next election cycle. U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the upper chamber, he represents the state of Kentucky. It is always great to talk to you. It's especially great to see you here in studio. Glad to be here. I enjoyed it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Pleased to have you here. So we're just chatting with Leader McConnell. And he was talking about some of the tough polling out there for Joe Biden. And I want to highlight a few additional examples. This is a new CBS News poll. And think about these numbers. Maybe write them down, jot them down. I retweeted them earlier. You can go find them there. As you listen, if you listen, to President Biden speak tonight. We'll have full coverage on Fox News Radio, Fox News TV side. We'll have a recap here tomorrow if you can't really stomach the whole thing. But if you're watching and Biden's out there talking about how great everything is and how his policies are working and it's the awful Republicans who are standing in the way of progress or whatever. CBS News asked the American people, are Biden's policies making these things better or worse? Are Biden's policies making your family's finances better or worse? 18 percent of the country say better. One eight. Less than one in five. 18% say he's making it better. He's underwater by 31 points on that question. Making political division better or worse, right? He was supposed to be the guy who can reach across the aisle, and I'm sure he'll do some BS stuff on bipartisanship tonight, even though he turns nasty and partisan on a dime. Well, the American people are seeing through it. 19% say he's making political divisions better. A majority say worse. 31 points underwater on that as well. Is he making illegal immigration better or worse? 21% say better. I'd love to meet these people. Maybe they're on some of the drugs that are coming across the border. But a majority say worse. He's underwater by 30 points on that question. Finances, national divisions, illegal immigration, worse, worse, worse across the board, and it's not even close. That's the reality. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Well, we just had Senator McConnell here in studio. Now we have another guest, one of our most valued guests here in studio, General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, 
and of course, Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst and General. It's great to have you back. Wonderful to be here, as always. You were live on the air when the Chinese spy balloon got blown out of the sky. You reacted in real time. I've seen the clip a couple of times. We've now had a few more days to look back at that whole experience spanning more than a week. We're getting increased reports about additional balloon flights that they're saying have happened over the last two administrations. I saw one report maybe up to 10. What are the big takeaways from a national security military standpoint based on what we've just witnessed in the public, at least this time, found out about it? Yeah, we got some good things and some things that are really not so good and are quite serious, as a matter of fact. Let's take some good things first. I mean, clearly this balloon penetrated the United States airspace, uh, but in doing so, prior to it actually penetrating, we were able to, to, to one, identify it wasn't weaponized, and two, its mission was electronic surveillance by and large, and we defeated that. They were not able to surveil uh, in accordance with the people who were tracking that and the NORAD commander. So You believe that? Well, I believe the NORAD commander. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> so that's a good thing. There's some real negative things here. I mean, we were tracking this for seven days coming out of China. January 21st is when it began. It took seven days to get to the coast of Alaska. And it, in my mind, that vehicle should have been taken down, even though it wasn't weaponized. We knew it had surveillance material on it. We knew it was heading for the United States. We didn't know where, that's for sure. But it should have been taken out. Now, the NORAD commander, where I disagree with him, fundamentally, he said, well, there was no hostile military threat. Those are his words. Well, give me a break here. I mean, if it's going to surveil the United States and it moves into the interior of the United States and surveils our nuclear bases, that is a hostile threat, and every person in America knows it is. If he needs new authorities to be able to do something, then get it to him quick. But that was a mistake in not taking it out. But actually, in my mind, much more alarming than that, than that balloon that was with us for a week is the revelation, as you just mentioned, as a result of a balloon, as a result of this balloon being in the United States, our intelligence services and the Pentagon went back and looked at the balloon that crashed off the coast of Hawaii a few months ago and then decided to let's take a look at the whole balloon fleet history of China and see where they've been and what they've doing and what evidence we have. And in doing so, they found all these other balloons that approached the United States, mostly from the south or southwest, one from the southeast, and some of them penetrated the airspace of the United States, and we did not detect it. And we're admitting that. That is a very serious violation. And the Chinese certainly know it because— no airplanes were sent up to confront it. We didn't jam any of their surveillance capability. So they knew that that particular approach is a pathway. Now, why does that matter? In July of— well, tw- Hang on. But before we get to why it matters, I'm, I've been struggling with this the last couple of days because I'm trying to understand the time frame. I know what they're, they're saying that now that we saw this balloon, it was huge, and shot it down— they went back and decided to what? Look at old like satellite or de- detection sensors or something that didn't work at the time, but they were able to find out that 
These balloons did cross into our territory over the span of years, what, whatever, three, four, maybe ten times. That just seems like a strange sequence for this to go in where they're like, oh, yeah, they did do it. We now know that they did it, but we didn't know it at the time. It, I, at least to me, political brain, it seemed like the Biden people felt like they had a political problem on their hands. And they decided to say, let's figure out how we can also rope the Trump people into this and saying, oh, well, it happened under them, too. Am I being too cynical on that? Too cynical. It's much too serious a problem. They're just using all source intelligence to try to figure out what the pattern was in the ba- in the past. And they revealed it to I talked to a senior defense official last night who confirmed to me, he said, look, it, we did not detect these devices and we've got, to, we've got to understand what's actually happening here. We've got to fix it. And here's why it matters. In July of 21, the PRC launched a hypersonic glide vehicle delivered by a, what is referred to, a very complicated term, fractional orbital bombardment system. It left China, circumnavigated the globe, and then came back to China by route of the southern hemisphere. And what that device can do is carry a nuclear weapon. We cannot track it completely, and we cannot intercept it, but yet it can carry a nuclear weapon. And what I believe the balloons are doing are probing the United States in different areas to see what the vulnerabilities are. Our classic detection devices for nuclear weapons, whether it's missiles or bombers coming out of Russia and China, northern orbit, North Pole, East and West. You come from the South, I don't believe the radar suites there are in the same numbers. I don't believe the satellite coverage is what it should be. Mm. And that is what China is probing. And I believe they're finding as a result of these and the detection and, and they listen, the administration is admitting that airspace was violated. And the fact is, we've got to fix this problem. And so it is a, it's a serious problem. Because what could follow a balloon that pathway, as I, as I mentioned, is a high-speed supersonic weapon system, that's a supersonic glide path system that's carrying a nuclear weapon. That could deliver a nuclear weapon. How is it possible, and I, you know, I'm a civilian completely, so explain it very slowly. How is it possible with the amount of money that we spend on the military, the amount of cutting-edge technology that we have in this country, that a hostile foreign government – could float multiple devices over our airspace on numerous occasions and our military not detect it. How is that possible? Right. I don't know the details of that. Uh, I'm as alarmed as you are, and I think uh, the people involved in this are certainly uh, fixated and, and alarmed with it as well. I gave you a general reason, I think, because... We're not covering there. We're not looking there to the degree that we are looking east, west, and north. Right, because this one came from the east and then, then the north, well, right? The the one that penetrated the airspace and wound up in Montana, then South Carolina, that came a traditional route. That came out of mainland China, went north. This is the route that an ICBM pretty much would follow, et cetera. So uh, it's not surprising that we caught it. It's not. So, we tracked it from the time it left China. Seven days we were tracking that. So that... That was predictable because our radar systems and our, and our suite of satellites are focused on those pathways. So, so putting this in a very rudimentary way, is it plausible, I guess, that previous balloons that 
let's say, took off from mainline, mainland China or somewhere else, if they had gone a different path headed south, we said, oh, that's probably not for us and just sort of forgot about it. Because we clearly have the capacity to see the launch of this thing and track it for a week before it gets to our airspace. Were the other balloons launched from elsewhere, or did they head in a direction where we assumed it wasn't I think destined for they, us? They, I don't know what the paths are. Uh, the person now looking at all that intelligence has that information, but I suspect I've been told that some of them circumnavigated the globe uh, south, in the global south, and if you look on a map uh, where the 10 are that we now know about but we're not aware of before this recent launch, they're all south. They're uh, around South America, the west, uh, southwest, or southeast. None of those 10 are north of a southern border. So, I mean, that would be a huge blind spot or a blind earth spot, yeah. which the Chinese have now learned. Do we have the ability to correct that quickly? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I think we've, we've known there, the, this issue is not new. Uh, we've known it, and, and we became quite alarmed about it in July of 21 uh, when that launch was taking place. I actually believed at the time— and The I, hypersonic one. The hypersonic one, circumnavigated the globe and came back to China from the south. I thought the administration at that time uh, should have come forward and talked to the American people that we do have a new threat, and we've got to get after fixing this, fixing our ability to detect it, our ability to track it, and our ability to intercept it. And we have problems with all three of those. Do we have similar technology? We don't have the fractional orbital bombardment system, or we've not developed a hypersonic glide vehicle. So they're ahead of us on this. Oh, yeah, very much so. They are able to steal a lot of our technology. Uh, <laughs> do we know how they're doing this? I don't know that. Now, is it possible that they have stolen components of this and because they have an acquisition system that moves quite rapidly mm. in a dictatorship, communist state versus a capitalistic state like ours, and our acquisition system from the time you have a decent idea and it's approved financially takes 15 years to get that weapon system. I doubt their system uh, takes 15. It's more like four or five. And, and possibly are there components in that system that we actually develop? All of that is likely, but we're in catch-up on this. But this is America. Look, we're good at we got a problem. We're good at going after it and fixing it. True. That's the, that's the positive side of it. The negative side of it is you don't want to be constantly in catch-up mode. You want to be clearly superior all the time. Oh, right? yeah. and I'm and sure we must have some stuff that they don't know about that is superior. But sure. it, this, this one, I mean, hearing you describe it is a little scary. Yeah, it is. And uh, we're vulnerable, uh, uh, certainly. But we'll, we, will get at, we will get after it. Uh, I'm confident of that. And I, and I think the administration, using this platform that, that what just happened to us, really owes it to the American people to have a, a more forthcoming narrative. I, I think, uh, and I have uh, you know, friends, obviously, in the military culture that felt that the, the administration should have stepped forward and just told the American people really what, what was happening and why it was happening and what was the pluses and what were the minuses about it. and given Because I think give, a, a lot of people have kind of watched it with some sort of almost goofy fascination. Look at this giant balloon floating through the sky and 
oh, we shot it down, and there were Democrats on the Hill mocking Republicans for being concerned about it. I think maybe some of the mockery goes away if you start to realize that this type of incursion has happened now apparently multiple times, and at least in your opinion and your theory, it's probing for weaknesses for potential uh, surprise delivery of nuclear weapons. I mean, th- then then the balloon story gets a little less fun. Yeah, even even with the balloon, it, you know, the uh, electromagnetic pulse people who who have been, you know, banging the table and say, "Come on, America, wake up!" Uh, adversaries could launch a, a high velocity, uh, not a high velocity, a high altitude super balloon and bring a nuclear device and explode it at 60,000, 70,000 feet and create an electromagnetic pulse that would shut down an entire grid and do that for months and months. And millions of people would die as, re- as a result of that. And, and you know, that, that gets some visibility, but not much. Uh, the good news here is uh, the NORAD commander knew that that balloon was not weaponized. And I'll take him at face value for, for saying that. And that kind of detection uh, that we have is is exquisite, it, and 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 certainly it should be applauded. That's the positive side, but there's a lot of questions that got to be answered yep. here. And you know, look, I want to believe, as a patriotic American, regardless of which party's in power, that we have really strong contingency plans to avoid the type of EMP attack that you talked about, or something else. I think there's probably a lot of Americans who also want to believe that, but are maybe not so sure because it seems like we have very strange priorities in this country a lot of the time. And you would think job number one of the government is to keep us safe. I hope they can. I hope they are a lot smarter in keeping a lot of this stuff close to the vest. Maybe that's the case to some extent, but I think there's probably some doubt out there among a lot of people. Yeah, and I think uh, hopefully – as they're beginning to meet, I think, tomorrow with closed sessions with the Congress, uh, that they begin, I mean, the Congress are the representatives of the American people, certainly as is the administration, but they they got to be very forthcoming. Because the, the Congress, regardless of senators, regardless of political persuasion, the, the administration is going to get some very tough probing questions about this. I mean, they should. I mean, it, it's it's, I think, essential. You know, General, I have a whole list here of questions about Russia and Ukraine and Iran. We can't get to them because we're out of time. Well, we'll do it next time. Time flies. There's a lot to talk about every time you come on the program. We really appreciate it. It's a special treat to have you here in studio. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, delighted to be here. Regrettably, the war is still going on, and we'll have opportunities to talk about it some more later. There's no doubt. We'll have you back. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and our senior strategic analyst here at Fox News. General, again, thanks so much. We'll step aside. Come right back. On The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Very, very busy here at the D.C. Bureau, Fox News. It is the State of the Union. A lot of people are here in town, part of the Team Fox coverage this evening, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern on the news channel. There will be extended coverage on Fox News Radio, before and after. Tons of analysis. We'll cut up the speech, talk about it tomorrow to a certain extent if you aren't going to watch the whole thing. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the newly minted governor of Arkansas, will be delivering the Republican response. That'll be interesting. 
One of the themes will be turning the page to a new generation. So I'll be interested to hear from Sarah, Governor Huckabee Sanders, who is a very well-known face and voice to this audience. She's been on this program, and of course uh, she was a spokeswoman for President Trump for a period of that administration. Now, in advance of the event tonight up on Capitol Hill, you might have heard through the years, typically what presidents will do is they will invite some of the news anchors off the record to have a little luncheon at the White House to preview some of the messaging and maybe butter them up a little bit and uh, give them a sense of what they're hoping to accomplish. This is a bipartisan tradition. Well, Speaker Kevin McCarthy... He held his own version of that over on Capitol Hill earlier, late this morning. And a number of our Fox News colleagues were in attendance, including some who were uh, down from New York. And it was an interesting collection of us. I would say the, the Fox contingent, the Fox crew was maybe 10 of us. And it was all off the record. So I can't share with you any of the details of what McCarthy said. There was some joking around about, you know, what facial expressions will he offer as he sits and or stands behind the president? When do you clap? When don't you clap? How do you react when the president's saying things that you think are wrong or unfair or untrue? So there, there was some discussion of that. There was a joke about whether he might pull a Pelosi and rip up the speech. Remember that? That classy move from Nancy Pelosi? Seems like McCarthy uh, is not interested in emulating that example. But someone else who was in that meeting at that luncheon will be joining us here in studio straight ahead. Martha McCallum. As soon as we come back in a brand new hour of the Guy Benson show, you don't want to miss it. Still so much to get to. So please stay tuned. A new hour on The Guy Benson Show underway from the D.C. Bureau of Fox News. Extremely busy here today. State of the Union tonight, full coverage. Here on the program, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. Follow us on social, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. See me on TV later. Bottom line, Fox Business Network recently debuted That's in the 6 p.m. hour again. FBN, Dagan McDowell, Sean Duffy will be previewing the State of the Union address right there. And joining us now here in studio in Washington, D.C., is our friend and our colleague, Martha McCallum, who, of course, is executive editor and anchor of the story every weekday at 3 p.m. on FNC. She's just off the air, and she also has her best-selling book, Unknown Valor. She's got her podcast, just everything going on in Martha World, including tonight co-anchoring our Fox News TV coverage of the State of the Union Address. It's so good, as always, to see you. It's so good to see you, Guy. We're, you know, I, I always enjoy coming in here. It's kind of like a little, it's like a little party. It is, especially today. <laughs> it's, it's usually not this busy around here, but for all the reasons uh, that are obvious today, it is. I don't often comment, I have to say, on your sartorial choices, although I think that you dress so well on and off the air. Oh, this, that's so nice of you. almost like hot pink, blazer with the big gold buttons yeah. i just i just have to say thank you i'm a fan it's it's highlighter pink 
<laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, it is neon, this jacket. But I think I needed to wake up a little bit this morning because I got up at like 5 a.m. to get myself down here this morning. So it, it woke me up. Well, and, and the thing is, I like it, but I can't look directly at it yeah, for more than three It's a little hard seconds. to look directly at it. I, I agree. But I was admiring it when you first walked into the room earlier because we both had this off-the-record luncheon with Speaker McCarthy. I've mentioned the fact that it happened. I haven't been talking about, of course, what was relayed because we want to respect the off-the-record nature of it. But just broadly speaking, Martha, mm-hmm. your impressions of the speaker, his demeanor, sort of the way that he was communicating with us, uh, just what are your impressions without betraying anything yeah. that we're not allowed to talk about? Well, obviously, it's a big night for him, right? I mean, this is something he's wanted for his entire career, to be the person who's sitting up there behind the president with, you know, next to the vice president during the State of the Union address is a huge honor. And he did, um, you know, it's it's publicly known that he met with President Biden last week and that there are areas that they're looking at possibly to maybe cut a little spending. That's also been reported. That's been out there. Um, I thought he just, in terms of demeanor, I mean, gosh, I mean, how many people could go through 15 votes, right? Hanging on by the skin of your teeth, Mm -hmm. wrestling for every single vote, slogging it out. That moment when he went over to to Matt Gates and was just like, you know, everyone's like, what are they saying? What are they saying? We found out. Yeah, we did find out. Um, But, you know, He seemed calm and relaxed, I thought, and pretty confident overall. He was, I would say, surprisingly chill about everything, like water under the bridge. Yeah. They had their reasons for doing it. We were able to get to a certain point where we moved forward. We'll have some issues in the future, but maybe not quite this same way. Right. He seemed like kind of zen about it. And also, Mm. there was at least some sense that there was method to the madness in terms of what he's doing and how he's going to try to corral this thing over the next two years. Whether it works or not, I guess we'll find out. But it wasn't implausible, at least to me, like, okay, there seems to be something of a plan here. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that I think people forget about Kevin McCarthy is that he's in a very difficult position of, you know, hurting the cats and keeping keeping people who have very different ideological thinking politically to head in somewhat of the same direction, at least sometimes, is very difficult, whether it's the former president of the United States or the moderate area of the Republican Party, or the Freedom Caucus. I mean, so sometimes I think people criticize him for, you know, sort of whatever word you want to use, you know, to all of these different parts of this agenda, right, of the former president, everything. He was criticized for January after January 6th for going down there and talking to him, right? But he sees that you have to keep everybody in the tent, Right. No matter what their leaning is, no matter which part of the party they're from, that that's his role. That's his job. So, you know, it's not an easy one and you're going to get criticized a lot. But I think that's what he's trying to do. Um, he's in a very precarious position. He's got a five vote margin. So um, we'll see if he can hang on to it. But but that's his goal. It's clear. Does anything catch your attention? We've gotten at least a partial list of some of the guests that will be in the chamber tonight. Presidents love to go up and point to so-and-so and and big ovation. Some of the more emotional moments come uh, with uh, a reference to the guests or what they've done. Anything stand out to you? I thought it was interesting that Paul Pelosi is going to be there. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, obviously he went through a 
traumatic experience uh, with a guy breaking into their house with a hammer. So I think that'll be an interesting moment. You know, Ronald Reagan, I'm looking at his bobblehead in front of me, sort of started this (laughs) started this uh, tradition of bringing people in to make points and Republicans nodding because you're right. Exactly. Republicans will also have some guests in the House uh, to, to make a point. I don't know. I don't know how effective it is anymore, honestly. Um, I think it used to be, you know, I think one person that stands out to me was the person who defected from North Korea and uh, had, I think, one or both of his legs broken in that process, who um, stood up during the Trump administration. I thought that was a very powerful moment because it also joined into the larger picture of, of, you know, of the North Korean foe and freedom. So I thought that was kind of a significant moment. I think it's tough to hit those out of the park, but we'll see if that happens tonight. Biden, according to the White House, like they're doing some of their top level briefings and they're saying that he's going to focus at least somewhat on bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. Okay, then they're also going to have the whole laundry list of demands, which are going to be, for the most part, quite partisan by design. I just wonder, I know Biden talked a lot about bipartisanship as a candidate in his victory speech when he was declared the winner that night was he leaned heavily into his mandate being to to heal people and sort of bring things back together that really is not how he's governed in a lot of ways and he'll point to a few accomplishments you know like oh an infrastructure bill or whatever but then he's out there calling republicans confederates or whatever uh, over the georgia law for example I just wonder if, if that's played out is there anyone truly left who looks at biden and says oh when he talks about bipartisanship uh, he really means it, and I'll just sort of zone out when he does all the super partisan stuff. It's interesting. I saw a poll that said, you know, is the United States, is America a dysfunctional family? And I think it was 70, north of 70 percent, said that they do think this country, they would, they would quantify it as a dysfunctional family. And the number's higher now than it was in the Trump administration. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, and this I is also, a CB, just to. To yeah. add to your point, CBS News, I mentioned this last hour, they asked the question, are Biden's policies, and one of the sub-questions was, making political division in America better or worse? 19% said better. Majority said worse. Yeah. So that, you know, so he's he's failed in that goal, if those numbers are true. And there are n- many different polls that you can look at to make that argument. I think it's interesting. I just talked to Shannon Bream, and she went to the off-the-record luncheon at the White House, right? And we did an interview on the story just moments ago. I said, you know, what surprised you? She said, I'm not sure he's going to run. And that was her takeaway from one of the questions that was asked, and it's off the record. But she just said, my my gut feeling was that his response to that was ambiguous, that he hadn't, you know, not sure whether or not he's going to run. That was her, her takeaway just from the from the big picture. So that really has a lot to do with what he's going to do in the next two years, right? If he decides that, if he decides not to run, and he hasn't told America either way yet, so it is an open question, um, it could really dictate whether or not he wants to unify the country. So this is a man who's dedicated his entire career to public service. He was the youngest member of Congress. So if he wanted to, he could be a unifier. He could do some spending cuts in negotiation for the debt ceiling, something that he was completely open to in 2011 as a senator. And in his career before that, he was a fiscal disciplinarian at some points. So the door's open for him to make that choice and say, this is my legacy. How do I want Joe Biden to be remembered? I don't know. I mean, I think it really depends a lot on whether he decides he wants to run or not. Certainly would free him up. I 
that's, I think, absolutely correct analysis. I have just had this feeling for months and months that he's not going to run. But then all the reporting is going in the other direction. Well, after the midterms, everyone said, oh, well, of course now he's going to run because he has a mandate. And you have to wonder, you know, I'm sure he was happy about the midterms, but was he happy about the fact that everybody felt that that meant that he should run? Because does and, and the thing is, is it him versus his family? Does does the first lady maybe not want him to run, but he really does or vice versa? I, we don't really know what that dynamic is in private. No. The Democrats also, we did a long segment yesterday about that. I don't know if you saw the New York Times piece about Kamala oh Harris. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. Wow. That was that was explosive. Yeah. I mean, the, the line that stood out to me from that piece on Kamala Harris was when it said, you know, her people gave us people to talk to for favorable quotes for this piece. You know, please go talk to these people because they're going to tell you a different story about how well things are going. And those people threw her under the bus? Yep. Had lost like, faith. Wow. I mean, that is, you know, it, in the political world, that is that that's a salvo. That is a very, very strong negative piece that was put out by The New York Times about her. So, um, you know, and I also think that it's interesting that they're starting with South Carolina. Right. Because she did terribly in Ohio and New Hampshire. And no matter how you slice it as the vice president, if he doesn't well, she, run, she didn't even make it. to Iowa. No, exactly. No, she went. She made it to Iowa. She dropped out in, in, in December of 2019. But I don't think she made it to the actual caucuses. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, she was. That, so, it was that. Yeah, bad. So, so that history for her is bleak. So. You know, I don't know if they're trying to leave a door open for her that potentially South Carolina might be a better place for her to start well, because she was, she's got to be in the mix. She I mean, was people polling better. Choose to run against her. She was a sitting vice president, right? And they're sort of right. Mean, no, you can't you can't put her out of the mix unless she puts herself out. You know, right. and it she's not even in a mix if Biden's running again. The fact that he wants the DNC calendar to change to states favorable to him would be a data point in the right. direction that he is going to run because he's like, there might be some of these whippersnappers trying to get me. I want to slam that door shut immediately. Jim Clyburn and I are going to go crush it in South Carolina, and I'm going to coast to you know renomination. That's another theory. Yeah. But he also has – if he does want to run again, he's got to ask himself, can I win with her as my vice president? Because he's going to be 81 years old. And if for any reason he decides, you know what, I'm not going to go the full term. I'm you know, tired. I want to quit after two, after two years. If she is the person that you're going around the country with saying, don't – you know, I, I understand I would be the oldest president. I feel great right now. But look, you don't have, have anything to worry now, about look who's because waiting this in the person wings. is going to be with me all the way. If he runs again, you've got to have somebody on that ticket that, that he feels Democrats and enough independents are going to feel great about. So if he doesn't run, he doesn't have to make that decision. That was also referenced in the New York Times story. People saying like, hey, she could be a drag on the ticket. But also, like, do you really depose the first ever woman of color on a presidential ticket? I tricky. mean, very tricky, especially by the rules that the left operates by. It's it's kind of a minefield right now. And it's from our perspective, really fascinating. fascinating. Back to tonight and looking ahead, because apparently Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to be talking about the future and a new generation. Yes. Not subtle. Younger leadership, yep. she wants. Not subtle. Yeah. And, and with all due respect, if I am at age 80, kind of in the ballpark of how Joe Biden is these days, like I feel like I've probably done okay in life, right? You know, like he's – right. But the job is so demanding and every word is scrutinized for good reason. 
that's one of the things where I look at him. It's like, could this guy really do this job for six more years? Mm-hmm. Six more after this? I, that's, that's the skepticism. So Governor Huckabee Sanders is going to be out there uh, sending some of those signals on generational change. But also it's a kind of a big moment for her coming out party nationally in her own right, not speaking on someone else's behalf, right. not a pundit somewhere. She is now this young female governor of you know a state that, of course, her father led, but also it was Bill Clinton's home state. Kind of an interesting uh, challenge for her. People always say it's a thankless job. Some people struggle to do well in this. I mean, it's a tough job. Can you think role. of one person who did that job and went on to bigger offices after? I mean, I think of Bobby Jindal. I think of Marco Rubio. Um, Tim Scott, I think it's too early to tell. Tim but Scott, he too did early a to tell. He very did good an excellent job. job. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I, I expect, will do a, a very good job tonight as well. But also keep in mind, when she's talk, calling for a new generation, she's also, I would imagine, talking about her own party as well. Now, that is interesting because she's a national figure based on her press secretary duties for someone who could maybe – View that as a cross uh, a shot across his bow. Unless she specifically, you know, gives him a carve out. <laughs> right. It calls him ahead of time. I'm not talking yeah, about exactly. you, sir. Yeah, and I don't that, know. We'll see. We'll be watching that. <clears throat> That's coming up directly after the president's speech. These things seem to go on forever. All the applause, all the theatrics. Political nerds like it. I don't know how many other people do, but we'll have full coverage, of course. Martha and Brett in the anchor chairs tonight on Fox News Channel starting at 9 Eastern. Uh, We'll have some radio coverage on Fox News Radio starting earlier as well. And then the Republican response after that. Full analysis for one news cycle. And then it's all off to the next thing. Martha, it is always so good to see you. We love having you on, but especially with you. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. And we'll see you soon, maybe up in New York. Martha McCallum on The Guy Benson Show. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Please stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for tuning in. I saw this clip late last night. It was from yesterday's White House briefing. Corrine Jean-Pierre at the podium. Question about the China balloon incident and apparent past incursions of Chinese uh, balloons and espionage efforts. I'll just let you listen. Listen to this. It's roughly one minute. Corrine Jean-Pierre attempting to answer this question. I mean, (laughs) cut eight. How is it possible that this administration discovered um, at least three previous balloons that flew over the U.S. under the previous administration, but Trump officials didn't know it was happening? Yeah, so look, I think that, uh, and we have talked about this before, about how um, uh, the, when it um, when the PRC government surveillance balloons trans, uh, trans, trans, transited uh, the continental U.S. briefly at least three times, as you just mentioned during the president's uh, prior administration, and once that we know of the beginning of this administration's, uh, but never for this duration of time, as we know, uh, this information was discovered prior to the admin- administration uh, left. Uh, but uh, the intelligence community, as I said, is prepared to give uh, give uh, briefings to key officials. Uh, but this is something. Uh, this is something. Sorry, post. But this is something that we we they did not. They were not aware of, as as we've just laid out. I really don't want to be unkind, but it is hard to overstate 
how bad she is at this job. That was a completely incomprehensible word salad. I think she said there that the previous balloon incursions had been discovered prior to the administration left. I think she's talking about the last administration leaving. It, it's sort of unclear. But my understanding that we also just heard from General Keene last hour was that that's not the case. That it was discovered just recently in the last few months. This is the President of the United States and his top spokesperson. And I think they're stuck with her for identity politics reasons. But I mean, sometimes you laugh, but sometimes you just have to wince. The Guy Benson Show is back next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Just past the midway point here on the Guy Benson Show today, Tuesday. We'll have full State of the Union reaction tomorrow here on the Guy Benson Show. Meanwhile, I want to talk about immigration, the border crisis. In fact, there were hearings on the House side of the Hill earlier today where finally some Border Patrol officials who had been previously blocked by the Biden administration from DHS from actually showing up and testifying, because of subpoenas and pressure, they were allowed to testify. And they came forward, and among other things, there was testimony that a lot of these illegal immigrants do in fact believe that the border is open. Now, I know the White House would say that's because Republicans keep saying that it's open under Biden. I think the reality is people believe that it's open because it is open under Biden. And even if you want to argue that it is not fully open because a lot of people get caught, many of them intend to get caught, by the way, it is absolutely not closed, absolutely not secure. More than a quarter of a million people encountered in December of last year alone. 71,000 gotaways last four months. More than 300,000 known gotaways. This is not a secure border. The invitation, the incentives are tantamount to open borders. That's the reality. We all understand it. Speaking that truth is not the problem. The truth that it illustrates is the problem. The policy, the underlying reality, that's the problem. And it's a reality, clearly, that is penetrating through not just south of our border, but all around the world. I saw a video last night. Bill Malugin had a report where they had exclusive footage of a number of busts of cars and other people trafficking these migrants from all sorts of different countries. There were Chinese migrants that they had on camera on the report I saw last night from our colleague Bill Malugin that I just mentioned that aired on special report. More than 150 countries represented over the last year plus during this Biden border crisis. People are getting the message. You want to come to the U.S.? You don't want to go through legal means for whatever reason. This is how you get here. Southern border. And by the way, to do that, you're going to be spending money with the drug cartels. Right. It's a very well-oiled human trafficking business at this point. That includes just average people trying to make a better life. Who don't have a right to be here. 
It includes bona fide asylum seekers, which is a small piece of the puzzle, although they all claim to be, or many of them do. There's the drug problem, fentanyl. Then there's high-value people from the cartel's perspective who really don't want to get caught because they have criminal histories, they're on terror watch lists, that sort of thing. That's the overall picture. And just a few more snapshots and portraits of it were relayed today in some of this testimony. There's also an amazing story that I want to read from it from the UK Daily Mail. I would like to inform you that there are Republican elected officials who are now shipping some of these illegal immigrants directly to the Canadian border. Are these Republican officials so callous? that they're going to try to hand our border crisis problems off to another country and not deal with the humanitarian problems in a compassionate way? Are these reckless, irresponsible Republican elected officials trying to start an international incident between Canada and the United States? It is the height of irresponsibility. How dare these Republican elected officials do that? How dare these Republican elected officials do such a thing? Oh, wait, hang on. I'm being told I have misspoken. Uh, They were not Republican officials. These are Democratic elected officials. Oh, how interesting. Have you heard screams and shrieks from the left? Wall-to-wall coverage from the media like we saw when Ron DeSantis sent one plane full of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard? You haven't? In fact, it's a foreign press organization from the UK that actually covered the story that in New York with the Democratic governor of New York and the Democratic mayor of New York City, what they are doing is giving free bus tickets to the Canadian border to illegal immigrants who want to go. Now, remember, folks, and this is especially important for young journalists who might be in journalism school or aspiring journalists, This is the key thing to remember in the style book. When Republicans do this with illegal immigrants, it is heartless. It is political pawns. It is political props. It is a stunt. It is especially human trafficking, and it might even be kidnapping. When Democrats do it, you just don't cover it. Or you use euphemisms such as relocation. Right? So just keep that in mind. That's how to be a good journo these days. Listen to this from the U.K. Daily Mail. The hustle and bustle of New York City are just too much for some illegal aliens, so they are taking advantage of free tickets to Canada. Free to them, of course, but no one is saying exactly where the money is coming from for the tickets. Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul are keeping quiet on how this move is being financed. Governor Hochul has confirmed that National Guard members have been deployed to Port Authority. They greet the migrants upon arrival and answer questions. They also hand out free tickets for shuttles that will take them to the Canadian border. From there, they can walk across the border to be met by. To be met by. To be met by Canadian police. City Hall officials call it reticketing. That's a new one. It's Greg Abbott. Ron DeSantis is human trafficking. It's Mayor Adams. It's reticketing. It's like when you go to the ticket counter at the airport. Oh, yeah, can you put me on standby for the earlier flight? That is reticketing. 
And this plan is to help migrants work their way to the great white north. Justin Trudeau, one of the most pompous, hypocritical preeners in all of politics worldwide, in my opinion, has been very outspoken, the story notes, about building a haven for people in need. So New York is taking him up on the claim. Now, here's where it gets even richer. A lot of the migrants are eager to take these tickets and get up to the Canadian border because they can't stand New York. Listen to this. Numerous migrants traveling to Canada reported being disgusted by the conditions they face in New York City. May I remind you, that is a proud sanctuary city. They'll have you know. Right, the most sophisticated, urbane people on planet Earth. So compassionate, so welcoming. And yet the conditions are disgusting, these illegal immigrants say. I guess especially those once they're asked to leave the three- or four-star hotels they've been put up in for weeks on end at taxpayer expense. I mean, I don't doubt that they're seeing some ugly stuff. But there's also just, to me, a shocking level of ingratitude as well. You come to this country, you cross illegally, you're processed and not turned away, you enter Texas or whatever, then you get put on a bus voluntarily to New York City, and then that's not good enough for you either. They start quoting them in the story. Illegal immigrants who felt at risk from homeless people and drug users. They sound like New Yorkers, actually. They're, They're assimilating. They just sound like New Yorkers, concerned about vagrant drug users. Quote, I wanted to live in New York because I thought it would be better for the future of my daughters, says a Peruvian illegal immigrant. And by the way, this is different than an asylum seeker. This is just an illegal immigrant. We all want better futures for ourselves, for our families, for our children. We have a nation of laws and sovereignty, and a lot of people just don't care. And they're being given the green light to come here from the Biden administration, just to put a finer point on that once again. But this Peruvian woman says that, quote, as the days went by, I saw insecurity, many homeless people, many people who shout and are disrespectful, many people on drugs. I'm going to Canada for safety. She says, I only ask God that everything goes well and that Canada is not like the United States. Huh. Here's a uh, 26-year-old illegal immigrant that they quote. He said he was kicked out of a Times Square hotel where he was enjoying, apparently, that experience. Imagine that. People spent a lot of money on that vacation, actually. But then they tried to relocate him to a shelter, and uh, that was not good enough for him. Not good enough for Manuel. So he said, all right, yeah, you know what? It's Canada time. Quote, a lot of the Americans use drugs, he said. I feel like Canada will be safer and quieter than America. Okay? I kind of wonder if Kathy Hochul and Eric Adams and these New York Democrats might start taking credit for disincentivizing the border crisis by making New York such a crime-ridden, dangerous, unpleasant place that people don't want to come there illegally. Like, maybe we could just be the middleman and make this Canada's border crisis. And I'm only being somewhat sarcastic with this. Right, Justin Trudeau and his left-wing government, they pander like crazy. They congratulate themselves for being some of the most enlightened, progressive people on the whole planet. Well, maybe it's time for them to take on this huge burden for us. As a matter of fact, now that we've got Democrats in New York sending a bunch of these migrants up north to Canada, 
I wonder if Governor Abbott in Texas might want to start busing and flying migrants directly to the same place. After all, it would be a bipartisan initiative. Right? Maybe he and Hochul and Eric Adams could have a big photo op together as they collaborate to send illegal immigrants from the southern border straight to the northern border, and then it becomes Canada's problem. In fact, there's now a whole cottage industry based on this new model. Buses will come from New York all the way up to the border, just shy of the border, and then local van and taxi services bring those migrants the rest of the way and drop them in Canada where the Canadian police are now gathering them. One cab driver says, it's got to be at least 100 people a day. He said, I do it all day long. They get dropped off. I take them the rest of the way. He charges 50 bucks to transport the individuals, families for 90 bucks. Former governor of New York, Democrat David Patterson, he was on the radio in New York City the other day saying, you know, it really seems like we're treating illegal immigrants in this city and state a lot better than we treat actual American citizens in need. He said he's watched all of this go down. He said not two blocks away from the hotel where a bunch of migrants were staying. Remember, a bunch of them sort of revolted because they didn't want to leave. They want to stay in the hotel and not go to a shelter. He said not two blocks away from that hotel, there were other people out on the street who are homeless. They have problems, too, and they're citizens of the United States. They live here. Now, in the hierarchy of wokeness, I don't really know where the grievance Olympics leave this scenario, how it exactly shakes out, but this is either a hyper-woke or an anti-woke statement from David Patterson just making this observation. Now, here's the thing. Justin Trudeau and his left-wing government in Canada, very welcoming, very progressive. What they don't always tell you is actually their immigration policies in a lot of respects are much more stringent. And I would argue in a number of respects, much more sensible than ours. With their migration policies, they do a lot of merit-based stuff, which is what Trump proposed, actually. And that was called xenophobic and racist and all the normal things. That's what they do in Canada. It's what they do in the U.K. as well, by the way. There are nuances and a few technical differences in places, but Canada, they do deportations. You can't just waltz into Canada and stay. That's kind of, they're very warm and welcoming in spirit. But the actual law, I saw one comparison was they have a very welcoming-looking welcome mat out front of Canada, but under the welcome mat is a bed of nails with really tough laws. So I wonder if... Justin Trudeau can live up to the aspirational rhetoric that he wants to be associated with and just make our border crisis his with the help potentially of Republicans and Democrats. How long will Canadian taxpayers put up with that? At the most recent summit of the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, remember this? It turned out that top-level U.S. and Mexican officials ran out of time, they said, This is from the Biden administration, ran out of time to talk about the border crisis. I kind of have an inkling that if this now becomes a Canadian problem as well in a serious way, a concerted way, I wonder if Trudeau might get on the horn, perhaps in his evening blackface, to our president, and we might have another summit. And they might not forget to put that on the agenda or run out of time to talk about it. It's just remarkable. I'm not seriously advocating that a serious policy solution to any of this is turning our southern border into our northern border. Just we're the middlemen. 
sending them straight to Canada. The actual solution is the Biden administration enforcing the law, going back and reverting back to successful Trump era policies and getting actually serious about border security. But do you see that coming anytime soon? I don't. So maybe it's time for some more stunts and human trafficking when Republicans do it and reticketing and relocation when Democrats do it. They can come together on this new bipartisan initiative and see what Justin and his taxpayers have to say up there. Is at least worth thinking about, eh? The Guy Benson Show back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Very glad that you're listening. So I gather from social media that yesterday was the first official day that Ben Sass, former U.S. Senator from Nebraska, took his new spot as the president of the University of Florida. We talked about this move. He has stepped away from the Senate. You now have Senator Ricketts in his slot. He'll be up for reelection, or I guess technically for election next year. We've had Sass on this program a number of times. Thoughtful guy. I think he's going back to academia because he had previously been the president of another college or university in the Midwest. Now he's down at a huge state school in Florida. I think he'll do a good job. Of course, predictably, some people on the left lost their ever-loving minds when he was announced because they view higher education as just the province of leftism. They're supposed to dominate. Their mindset always has to prevail. And having even a Republican or conservative like Ben Sass is just an affront to their supremacy in these realms. So they just had big tantrums on social media and then a big, maybe not so big, in-person tantrum yesterday where they were taping demands to his office door. I hope he takes all of those and with a very pleasant smile throws them in the garbage can. There are no demands. That's not how this works. And I saw reports that there were like, you know, big angry protests and they were mobbing and they were taking direct action. And Then I saw some of the videos One of them, as they were getting ready for their protests, it was maybe a few dozen people, some of whom were way too old to be students. That was it. So I know they're very loud, and they like to pretend like they speak for everyone, like, you're not welcome here, not on our watch, with all their totally insufferable, insipid chants. This is a school of 57,000 students, and a teeny tiny fraction of one percent of them it looks like actually showed up i think senator sass now president sass down at uf is going to be just fine so for today and today only i'll say go gators wishing the best to ben sass down in gainesville final hour of the guy benson show coming up next united states senator tim scott south carolina joining us as soon as we come back It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. 
Tuesday edition. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day when the show is over, about an hour from now. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally on those same two platforms at Guy P. Benson. I'll be on Fox Business Network in the next hour with Dagan and Duffy. Hope to see you there. And we will have full coverage tomorrow of the State of the Union Address, which is happening tonight. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It is so good. We recommend it. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. With us now, U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, author of the book America, A Redemption Story. Senator, it's always great to have you here. Thanks for coming back. Well, thank you, guys. Always good to be on radio with you. So I want to start with this. Right now, somewhere, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is getting ready for a very significant speech. She's probably nervous. She's probably going through some of the lines in her head, reading through it one last time. You've been in those shoes before. People talk about it like it's sometimes a chore. It's difficult to do. It's so hard to follow up all the grandeur and the pageantry of the State of the Union address. Some people famously flop in that setting. You did very well. If you could just talk a little bit about your process getting ready to deliver that response to the president, as you did, and then any advice that you would have, whether for Sarah Huckabee Sanders or future Republicans or Democrats in this position, what might some of that advice look like? Well, Guy, if I was uh, looking back, the three points I would probably make is, number one, have something good to say. Number two, say it well. And number three, know your audience. When you know your audience and you can have something good to say and you can say it well, part of saying it well is be clear and to be concise. As Republicans and as conservatives, we should always be optimistic. In spite of the challenges that we face, we know that the American people, we are always the solution. We're never the problem. We also know that under this administration, we've seen the worst of times. We've seen the worst in history in the number of illegal border crossings. If I were her, I would talk about closing the the southern border to stop the fentanyl from coming across the border. I would talk about closing the southern border to stop the four and a half million illegal immigrants coming across the border. I would then contrast that position with something optimistic, like Kim Reynolds and other governors throughout the country passing school choice, making sure that quality education is a reality in every single zip code. And then I would be clear that this administration spent $4 trillion of your money. There's no such thing as a federal dollar. They're all your dollars. And the result of that, you have less spending power because 13.5% inflation erodes your spending power. We have a better plan. It starts with turning the spigot off. Everyone can understand that. It is clear, it is concise, and it is laced with optimism. Were you super nervous or not really? I, my knees were buckling so loud, I could hardly hear my heart beat, and it was pretty loud, too. I got great advice, though, from Marco Rubio, who said, hydrate, hydrate. <laughs> you don't want to overhydrate because you won't make it through the, through the comments. So it, it, you have to take a deep breath in. And remember, you've been given the privilege of speaking to the American people who love, love, love common sense. 
They love common ground, and they love our conservative principles. We just have to make sure that we inspire and encourage them. That's all we really need to do. You mentioned the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. She gave the response last year. I think she did a good job. And then here we are in the new year. And as you said, she has signed a really spectacular, comprehensive uh, school choice bill into law in that state. I know some people have been very upset about it, but they had the votes to do it. They passed it. She's not the only one. This has been now a pattern sweeping the country. Republican governors have just, and state legislatures, give them credit too, the moment seems to have arrived. And I don't know if that has to do with COVID and school closures and all the harms that have been done. I'm sure that's part of it. But the Overton window of what's possible on school choice has absolutely shifted in a positive, I would say, actually progressive direction, not left-wing progress. It's it's been a dream of yours. You've been talking about this for years, Senator. It's happening. Ten years I've been on this topic, and I am so thankful to see our country move in the direction. And it is, in fact, the same direction as 68 percent of Democrats, 67 percent of independents, and over 70 percent of Republicans all agree on some form of school choice. The only folks in the country and leadership who seem to disagree with it is the Biden administration. That is a place where they're trying to shut down charter schools. But thank God almighty for folks like Kim Reynolds and, frankly, even in my home state of South Carolina, for the first time, our state Senate, led by Shane Massey, just passed school choice out of the state Senate for the first time, I believe, ever. So we're seeing momentum because good leaders understand that good kids in every zip code deserve access to the American dream. And, Guy, here's the good news. It's no longer the color of your skin. It's not whether you're black or white that determines the outcome in America. It's the quality of your education. We can make sure that every single child in the nation has a chance to succeed. There was a very disturbing event in Memphis recently. I know that you've been talking about it. You've commented on it. I know some people rushed to racialize it immediately. Some people who are hostile to police decided to paint with a broad brush, as they so often do after these uh, excesses. And this was a very bad one in Memphis. But it has sparked renewed interest in your push with Senator Booker on police reform. I know you tried in the past. It ultimately hit an impasse and you were unable to get to a final uh, conclusion. I know the Democrats were you know, filibustering some of your ideas and that sort of thing. If you just want to comment uh, maybe on the incident, but moving forward on what you're trying to renew here in the legislative process, is there any reason to believe that things could end differently this time, given, I would say, some of the really uh, ugly political games, frankly, that they played last time? Exactly. And, Guy, you hit the nail on the head. Last time, our vice president stood up and walked out of the room. She said, if we're here to negotiate, count me out. Six of us in the room trying to finish the bill. The good news is her departure made it clear that the Democrats cared more about the issue than the solution. What we saw in Memphis was an atrocity. It was murder, but it should not reflect on law enforcement whole. Tonight, my guest at the State of the Union is a guy named Anthony Sampson. He is a South Carolina law enforcement agent, happens to be African-American, and he 
represents the best wearing the badge. As I work through police reform, the one thing I will not do is question and or accept anything around qualified immunity. I will not ask you to give up your livelihood, your home, your pension in order to make life better for someone else. That's just unconscionable. So when the Democrats put things like that on the table, the only thing to do is to walk away. A bad deal is unacceptable. So if we're going to talk about the duty to intervene, if we're going to talk about more funding for body-worn cameras, if we're going to talk about more training, more resources, and better officers, count me in. As long as law enforcement stands by our legislation, we have an opportunity. I met with them today. They are excited about a lot of the legislation, and I won't give on the parts that make their jobs even harder. Yeah, because, I mean, frankly, in some of these large cities in particular, it seems like the quote-unquote reforms are going in not just the wrong direction, but genuinely insane directions where the police oh, yeah. literally can't do their jobs and they're they're decriminalizing crime and you can't pursue suspects. I mean, it's, it's wild. You know, D.C., I mean, some of the worst, quote-unquote, reforms, they almost read like a cartoon character of, of the far left. That's what they just passed here in D.C. Absolutely. One of the things we have to re- realize is that recruiting is down significantly. In South Carolina, one out of four law enforcement positions still goes vacant because defund the police, blame the police, disrespect the police has a massive impact on recruiting. When the mayor of D.C. tries to veto veto legislation around crime, as a progressive mayor, that tells you how bad it's gotten in Washington, D.C., our citizens deserve better, and we can give them better. That starts by refunding the police, respecting the police, and thanking God for the best wearing the badge. You, of course, are from the Palmetto State, a South Carolinian, and one of your fellow South Carolinians is going to make some significant news in just about one week. The former governor of your state, Nikki Haley, I know you guys know each other quite well. Uh, she's going to announce her president. I wonder what you think of her and that reported development that's coming down the pike. Nikki Haley is a a powerful, very constructive person who wants good for our country. Uh, I I wish her all the all the all the good health and and uh, good campaign that she can find. Uh, We we need as many good voices in this race as we possibly can have. I look forward to seeing what the American people are thinking. And and, uh, I look forward to that conversation. And on a similar note, uh, people have, of course, pointed out your travel schedule. It's a couple states on that list that are uh, notable in terms of where they land in the the calendar, the nominating calendar for the presidency. Of course, your state is is a huge deal on that front, too. The speculation is mounting that you might be thinking about running. I know people have been asking you this question now for years. Seems like, at least for now, it's more of a listening tour. What's your thought process there? You know, prayer is a big part of my process for making any major decisions. I'm a big fan of the concept that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens the other. And so good counsel is another part of it. And number three, it's understanding and appreciating where the American people are and where we're going as a country. I'm, I'm inspired and encouraged about the future of this nation, not because of who's in the White House, but because of who's in every house. We have strong, powerful mothers who are working their butts off, making sure that the ends meet. We have good fathers who are out there going the extra mile, making sure that they are able to provide for their families. If we keep the mission first, 
if we keep the mission of America first, the title should, um, should matter less. So my focus will be, will be on spreading my mission of opportunity and hope. And if I have an opportunity to, to do so, we'll see what the people say in response. One last question. We have about a minute left. The Democrats are moving to make South Carolina first in line when it comes to their nominating process for the presidency. That's something that Joe Biden has asked for. Obviously, that state was huge for him uh, back in 2020. As a South Carolinian, what do you think of what they're doing on the other side of the aisle, really elevating your state in that way? I think we overlooked the incredible power of the first in the nation, Iowa having the first in the nation caucus. I, I do think the diversity of the state in the way that people think uh, and the, the diversity of the workforce of opportunity, it is a good place to, to start this entire presidential conversation. I do like the first in the South, remaining South Carolina. On our side, we decided to do so. I think there's no doubt that the politics on the left are more tribal and more racial and so they want to make sure that they set the president up for success. I think it's a mistake on their side. You have to compete for every single vote in this nation and not just set yourself up for success by starting in a state where Jim Clyburn and others bailed out his presidency. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. And I think that's uh, some, some insight there that perhaps some Democrats would actually agree with. Conversation perhaps to continue another day. Tim Scott, U.S. Senator from South Carolina, Republican, our guest. Senator, thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. Have a great day. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday, we had a really interesting conversation with Trey Gowdy. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. One of the topics that we tackled with Trey was this high-profile murder trial happening in his state, South Carolina. I had not really paid much attention to the case at all. I got a very short briefing from Wyatt and Christine, who had been following it, this Murdaugh trial down there. And it sounded fairly intriguing. Then Trey Gowdy had some color commentary on it. I got more intrigued, and I was told there's an HBO Max documentary series about this, which was baffling to me because the trial's happening right now. How's there a documentary about this? Well, as it turns out, this has been a very serious criminal drama playing out over years, and the documentary, which is very recent and new, was put together relatively quickly, but I had no idea the extent of the alleged criminality and the death and destruction surrounding, like the blast zone surrounding this family in South Carolina was extraordinary. So I was told it was a good documentary that comes in three parts. I was on the fence about watching it. Then I was in the green room last night for a special report for the panel, and The trial came up on TV. Byron mentioned it. He brought up the documentary, and he said it is wild. He said he watched all three episodes right in a row. He couldn't stop watching it. So I said, okay, if Byron York is getting really energized over this, I'm going to give it a shot. And Adam and I, we like some true crime stuff occasionally. So after dinner last night, we put on episode one. Adam knew nothing at all about the case. I knew enough 
to sort of see where certain things were going. But there were other elements like mysterious deaths, money laundering, and a lot of the tentacles and fingerprints all leading back to this one now destroyed but long, powerful, influential, dare I say, evil family in the low country of South Carolina. And just when you thought it couldn't get crazier, there's like, well, here's another mysterious death, actually. Here's that 911 call from those years ago. And wait, he did what? He hired who to do what? It's crazy. And in the documentary, so we were planning to watch one, maybe two episodes and finish it. Nope. Straight through. Three hours. We couldn't stop. Now I'm invested in the trial. Like, I'm reading details. Now I understand what Trey Gowdy was talking about with the change of clothes. Apparently there's a Snapchat video that's very damning for one of the surviving members of this family. Let's put it that way. Woo! So we don't do a lot of that kind of stuff on this show, but now I'm kind of hooked. I'm worried if I keep going down this path, this is going to become basically Nancy Grace here. With all with all respect to Nancy. But we might have to see this one through to its conclusion because it is bonkers. The documentary, by the way, HBO Max, is called Low Country. I think there's some subtitle as well, but wow. I am still slightly shook by what I watched last night. And now the trial's ongoing. So... It's like not even in the past. They'll maybe make a fourth episode of this thing at some point. We'll see. Guy Benson Show back with more right after this break. Stay with us. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. And at the very start of today's program, the very top, we welcomed in studio U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the upper chamber. Wide-ranging conversation with Leader McConnell. Here's part of it. Joined now here in studio by the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. Great to see you again, sir. Yeah, glad to be here. So let's talk a bit about tonight. What are you expecting from the president? It's always a big narrative evening for the party in power. Uh, I'd imagine you probably won't be leaping to your feet all that often with rapturous applause. Going to try to avoid that. I think the good way to stop, uh, start is to see, uh, talk about what the president's job is tonight. I just looked at a poll today that you may well have referred to. It said only 13% of Americans thought the State of the Union was strong. 13%. They're reacting, obviously, to open borders, rampant crime inflation through the roof, and the balloon. A whole week surveying all of America before a decision to shoot it down. Reminds me of the tentative nature of their involvement in Ukraine, which I largely support. Frankly, my biggest criticism of the president on Ukraine is they don't seem to do things fast enough. So that's the challenge the president has before him, in trying to convince the American people of something they do not think, which is that the State of the Union is strong. 
and he wants to take credit for it, too. And that will be almost inevitably this sort of rah-rah thing about how, thanks to Democratic policies, right. look at the job growth and a few other things. I mean, you kind of know what's coming to some extent, a whitewash of the problems, a claim of victory. You know, maybe there are some people who are persuaded by that. I wonder if it's actually a potential backfire based on the polling. It's not where the public is. Yeah, he's not going to be able to convince people that what I just said is not true. Mm-hmm. But it is an opportunity for him to make his case <clears throat> to a fairly large audience, and I expect he'll do it as well as he can, given the circumstances. President Biden, a few weeks ago, was asked about the document scandal and the mm. classified materials, and he said, this was out in California, that he had no regrets about any of it. Just yesterday, he was asked if he takes any personal blame for the mishandling of classified information. He said flat no. The White House wants us to believe, as they repeat ad nauseum, that they take all of this very seriously. But when you have the chief executive saying he has no regrets and takes no blame at all for his own actions, I mean, does that sound serious to you? No, I kind of like the way Mike Prince handled it. He said, uh, I may well have inadvertently done this. Come look. Um, From a public point of view, I think the administration ought to treat all three of these situations exactly the same way. No difference. And uh, in the end, we'll see whether this is something we should all be alarmed about or not. But one thing I know future presidents are going to do, I hope, is be a lot more careful about what they take away from from the Oval Office. There's this looming debt ceiling negotiation that's sort of already Mm -hmm. underway. The deadline for real looks like uh, sometime in June. I had lunch today with Speaker McCarthy, and he was giving some off-the-record thoughts about his approach to this. And I know he was very public that he met with the president last week, and he had described publicly that <clears throat> meeting as uh, that meeting rather as productive and good. A long way to go, though. It seems like there's a pretty big gap still between what the White House is wanting and saying versus what Republicans are saying. You were not in that meeting. What's your approach to this? Do you kind of want to let the president and the speaker do their thing, and you're going to hang back and see what comes out of that? Well, first, a little history. Uh, Joe Biden and I negotiated the Budget Control Act. I remember. 2011. Yep. Um, it was in conjunction with the debt ceiling. If you were interested in cutting spending, it actually did it. We cut spending for two years in a row for the first time since right after the Korean War. So if you were interested in reducing spending, it worked. My full interview with Mitch McConnell available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also on our free podcast. That's the whole show every day on demand for free when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Well, yesterday, I spoke too soon. The saga continues. Update next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day. Tonight, I'm joining the bottom line. Dagan McDowell, Sean Duffy, my debut appearance on that new program coming up in the next hour on Fox Business Network. So hope to see you there. You can also set your DVRs. All right. So yesterday in this segment, I told you the story about our water heater going out at home. It's been out now for days or had been up till yesterday. 
I was gone for most of it, so Adam was bearing the brunt of the lack of hot water while I was gallivanting on the West Coast at an event and so on and so forth. But I did relay the story of having to take a shower at a neighbor's house yesterday morning because the plumber was coming later and it just had to happen and it was just an unpleasant experience. Not that the neighbor was anything other than very generous and kind. Of course, that was great. Just taking your showering stuff, shuffling across the street in the cold, practically in a bathrobe, it was just kind of humiliating. Like, here I am, an adult, begging other people in my neighborhood just to be able to bathe. It was just a little bit demoralizing. It was not exactly the most dignified experience I've ever had. And I likened it just a little bit to a walk of shame scenario. But as I also said yesterday, the problem was fixed. Plumber was there. The issue had been dealt with. Hot water had been restored. And we can all laugh about this silly little episode that was in the past. False. The plumber did come. The problem was seemingly fixed. It was not, in fact, fixed. I got on my Peloton exercise machine. I was exhausted yesterday, absolutely exhausted. My travel day Sunday, I didn't sleep very well at all. But I forced myself. I said, you got to exercise. So I got home after special report, got on the bike, and I did a really, really hard ride. 30 minutes, the last 10 of which were grueling. It was unpleasant but worth it. And I was sweaty and gross and so ready for a nice hot shower, and then a bite of dinner, then we were going to watch some TV. The shower water did turn warm, excitingly, and I was getting all soaped up and shampooed and all that stuff, and less than a minute into the shower, it plunged into freezing temperatures again. The water heater failed. I was mid Shower, like mid-suds. What do you do? It was freezing. It was I couldn't just grit my teeth and tough it out for the rest of the shower. It was not cool water or room temperature water. It was frigid water. So I got out of the shower, stood there kind of shivering, and started calling neighbors. The first two didn't answer. <laughs> they made me sound like, God, it's them again. Is their shower still broken? Don't answer. I'm not accusing them of dodging our calls. They both called back later. But one neighbor did answer. And so I got my stuff, put on some clothes because, A, you have to, but I had, like, actual soap on my body. Put on a winter coat, got my toiletries, got my towel, and walked over to the neighbor's house. So this is, in my mind, not a worst-case scenario, but it's, it's up there. It's another humiliation. It was the brief tease of the warm water that then was just snatched away cruelly less than a minute into the bathing experience. It was the realization that the hundreds of dollars we have already spent, like $700 on fixes, 
and plumber appointments and all this stuff had gone to waste. Clearly, the problem was not resolved at all. And then here I was, like, both disgustingly sweaty and half-bathed, showing up at a neighbor's house. It gets worse. At the neighbor's house, they ended up having a problem with their hot water. So I took a room temperature shower at their house. I barely had the heart to tell them because they were like, was that great? How was the hot water? You were probably like they were really playing it up. And I had to just sheepishly like embarrassed. Like I'm the curse in all of this. I said, actually, the water didn't get warm. I wasn't like teeth chattering, but I was cold. It was not refreshing. It was not fun. So they were apologetic. Now I'm feeling even more guilty for imposing on them and then having to tell them that they had an issue. Then they're embarrassed in their own right. It was just so bad. I actually snapped a photo of me just holding my towel and a little gym bag with stuff in there because we brought like soap and shampoo over and I sent it to the team in a text message because we had talked about it on the home stretch. I said, Welp. Christine's like, oh, took me a second to realize what was happening. Yep. So Adam was back on the phone with the plumber, and at this point he said, look, if I have to run even more diagnostics, the earliest I can get there is probably Wednesday afternoon. And then I won't really even know what the problem is, because what we thought the problem was clearly is not the case or is not the whole story. He's like, I now have two or three other theories. He said we have to test them, and then we'd probably have to order parts. And we're talking about days and days. He said the other option here is you get a new one. He said, I have a new one. It will fit in your space. I've been to your house. And it's just it's thousands of dollars. And we basically begged him, if we decide to drop the money on this, can you at least come tomorrow, i.e. now today, Tuesday? And he said he could move some things around and probably get to the house today. So we thought about it. We are already $700 plus parts that we ordered in to this ordeal with no hot water as a result. So the calculation was... Do we incrementally continue to spend hundreds of dollars more trying to figure out what's wrong with this damn thing, hoping that we finally fix it when there's clearly now something wrong with it? And that could take quite some time and trial and error and waiting for parts and more labor costs, all of it. Or do we bite the bullet and spend thousands of dollars on a brand-new tankless water heating system for the house and have it installed today, Tuesday. This was a very unfortunate choice that I did not anticipate having to make in the new year, but here we are. And at last report, the plumber was at the house today beginning the process of installing this new machine And what worries me is at least when we were going on the air this afternoon, he was still at the house working on it because we were told it was going to be wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, a quick install. We know exactly what we're doing. He was 
at the house already this morning when I was back at a different neighbor's house taking my morning shower, which I had to do. What I would have preferred is just like I have a home studio. I could do the show from home. If I wasn't showered and a little bit gross, fine. But I had TV today. I also had a meeting with the Speaker of the House with a handful of Fox colleagues preparing for the State of the Union, off-the-record stuff. I needed to be presentable. So I was back at the neighbor's house again, a different neighbor, showering this morning. And while I was showering, actually under hot water, which was very exciting, by the time I was walking back across the street, the plumber was there. So if I'm doing my math right, he'd been there for like five or six hours by the time I checked in with Adam about, hey, do we have hot water yet? Not yet. But a lot of money has been spent. So I tune in tomorrow. Is our bathroom working yet? Oh, by the way, that's the other thing. I got back from the neighbor's house. I was in a time crunch because I had to get to Capitol Hill, had to get to this meeting on time. And I went to go brush my teeth. But because this guy was now installing a new water heater, we had to turn all the water in the house off. So there was no water at all coming out of the faucets, none. And I had to brush my teeth. I was also really thirsty. So what I ended up doing was using bottled water to brush my teeth. I mean, it was just, it was a comedy of errors. Tell you what, for this price tag, this thing better be freaking ready by the time I get home off the air tonight. Although, quite frankly, after Joe Biden's speech, I might need a cold shower. So, I mean, there's that. And I hate to uh, drag this out. Maybe the only positive out of this whole situation is that it's been good for content where I can get on the air and talk about how embarrassing and suboptimal this whole thing has been. But I think this is day six or seven now without hot water at the house. I've only been here for like two and a half of them, and I leave tomorrow for North Carolina. So if the thing still isn't working, I'm going to abandon my poor husband again to a hotel in another state where I can actually bathe like a civilized person in temperature-adjusted water while he's still dealing with it. But I look, I'm, I have to keep the faith. New water heater. You know that term adulting, which I don't like? This felt like peak, unglamorous adulting. Where something goes wrong and you're a homeowner and there's no one to call except the guy that you've got to give a lot of money to to fix the problem. And you have no choice. Like, this isn't a luxury that we can maybe do without. We didn't budget for it. You need hot water in your house. And even for a little while today, I was reminded how wonderful running water is, too. We didn't have that for a while. Good times. Apparently, the problem is spreading. The cancer is spreading. Wyatt now has a shower leak in his new apartment. So the new landlord dealing with that, he's going to be sending new angry emails to a new management company. He's still not done with the last one. Christine apparently has some shower story. Christine, we only have like a minute here. Is it better than mine? I can't imagine that it is. Actually, you know what? I I just thought about it. I probably shouldn't tell you the story. It might be illegal. It might be illegal? Yeah. It's a long story, but I don't want to. I think I violated some construction permit. So, well, you know, we all have issues in the shower, don't we? Now you've only piqued my interest. So we're out of time. I'm going to have to give an update on this at some point tomorrow or whatever. And. Christine, you know, consult a lawyer. 
and then we're going to have to pull out of you whatever your story is. Hopefully, we don't have people showing up in handcuffs at the end of the home stretch. My guess is like building codes and construction permits. I don't think you go to prison for that sort of thing. So just think about it. We've got to leave it there. I'm heading to the bottom line up in just a few minutes on Fox Business Network. Hope to see you there. I'll be part of the radio side. State of the Union coverage tonight, previewing the speech, and then back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show, same time as always. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic night. Stay warm. Hot water helps. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.